Well, welcome to the April edition of The Gathering Storm. My name is Dr. Paul Benware, and I have been asked to take our listeners through my new little book on the book of Revelation. It's uh, only 96 pages long, and it's entitled Understanding the Book of Revelation, the Unveiling of Jesus Christ as Judge and Coming King. One might wonder why we need another book on Revelation, and uh, that's a good question. But it has a lot to do with the context within the church today. First of all, there seems to be uh, a growing interest, I believe, in prophecy with all that's going on in the world, with uh, what was triggered by the whole COVID uh, experience. Um, people are wondering just where are we headed? What What's going to happen here? But in connection with that growing interest about the future, it's uh, there's another reality, I think, that we need to be uh, aware of, and that is that today's believers, especially younger ones, are prophetically uninformed. Uh, for years now, the church has been downplaying biblical prophecy. Uh, it, Generally speaking, rare is the church that ever systematically uh, teaches on uh, biblical prophecy. Pastors are purposely uh, staying away from um, teachings of eschatology or biblical prophecy. And it's because they say <clears throat> uh, prophecy is too complex. Uh, prophecy is too controversial, and, and some churches have actually uh, dumbed down their uh, doctrinal statement in the area of prophecy, either eliminating it altogether or basically limiting it to the idea that Jesus Christ is going to uh, return at a second coming sometime in the future. Well, because of the uh, lack of of teaching about biblical prophecy, um, believers today are are not only less informed, uh, but they are more easily persuaded by the plethora of internet prophets that have uh, uh, appeared on the scene, and they really don't know exactly what to think or how to think. So this little book, Understanding the Book of Revelation, which we're going to be walking through uh, in our study this time and next month as well, is designed to quickly, but hopefully uh, in a um, complete way, take us through the book of Revelation. The, um, <clears throat> the book can be obtained, and we're not trying to hawk our books here, but this book can be obtained by simply going to my website, paulbenware.com, P-A-U-L, B-E-N-W-A-R-E dot com and um, the information was there on on how to how to pick up a little copy of it. Now the book of Revelation is designed to be understood. That's what the Apostle John the writer says. He began Revelation by declaring that it is an apocalypsis of Jesus Christ. That is, it is an unveiling of Jesus Christ. It is not a concealing of Jesus Christ. In other words, God intends for us to understand this book, and believers can. Uh, that's what God desires, that we understand his, his last word on prophecy through the Apostle John. The book is Holy Spirit-inspired, and it is also Holy Spirit-illuminated. The Spirit of God can allow us and help us uh, to understand uh, the teachings of this book. And as the world uh, seemingly uh, heads towards the end of the end times, uh, Revelation is, is becoming um, really more significant than ever in people's thinking. And so this little book that we're going to be going through is written to help Bible students strengthen their grip on the book of Revelation by uh, doing it, uh, doing three things. Number one, 
by giving the uh, giving five uh, key uh, principles for interpreting the book. Uh, if these principles are not in in place, then the um, reader of the book of Revelation is likely going to end up wandering all over uh, the theological wilderness. Secondly, uh, the book will detail the sequence of coming events. And one of the things that is oftentimes overlooked is that the book of Revelation is basically written sequentially or in chronological order. And when we begin to see those things, the book takes on, I think, a much greater clarity. And the third thing we do is to, with uh, alongside of uh, various charts and maps, that we have a paragraph-by-paragraph study of the content of all 22 chapters of the book of Revelation. Um, They are summarized uh, so that there will be, uh, I hope, an enhanced understanding of the final book. Now, before we actually look at the text of Revelation, there are several matters that are essential uh, to us in, in us tightening our grip on the final book of the Bible. You know, <clears throat> most of us, when we head out on a extended road trip, we take time to plan ahead, don't we? We um, get out our paper map, or maybe we uh, simply get out our phones and Google but we, we take a look at what the best routes are. Uh, we look at uh, where perhaps major construction is going on and, and, if possible, try to avoid that. And we, we take a real good look at the map in or, because we want to get to our destination, uh, likely in a reasonable amount of time. Well, in um, our study of Revelation... Uh, the first thing that we need to do is to do that very thing. We need to go back and we need to look at um, the basic interpretive issues that are going to chart our course for us. Have you ever wondered why it is that Bible teachers can be wildly different from one another as they're teaching a, a particular text? And you kind of wonder sometimes, are, are these folks, um, are they looking at the same book I'm looking at? Well, first of all, we need to understand that uh, uh, people's understanding and interpreting of the book of Revelation launches off of one of four launching pads. Um, idealism, historicism, uh, preterism, and futurism. Now, we're not going to take a lot of time on this, but uh, we are futurists. I think most of us that are are listening uh, and the little book on Revelation that I've written is futuristic. And what we simply mean by that is that what Revelation talks about has not yet happened. And we're especially, of course, looking at chapters 4 all the way through 22. So the huge majority of this book hasn't taken place yet. And so, because we interpret normally or literally, uh, we see these events as yet to come. They have not happened in the past. So we are futurists. Those who are idealists, um, which is not a common view held by those who are conservative in their theology, But basically, idealism says that you approach the book of Revelation simply looking for basic principles or lessons that are valid in any age. In other words, the symbols, the events uh, in the book of Revelation really don't apply to anything specific. So prophecy is taken non-literally. The allegorical spiritualization approach is taken, which always makes the interpreter the final authority. But the book of Revelation is just like um, a group of proverbs. Uh, They're designed to let us know that um, God is sovereign or that good is, in fact, going to win out over uh, evil. Historicism has been, since the time of the Reformers, uh, the majority approach. 
And the idea of historicism is simply that the book of Revelation and other prophecies, prophetic portions as well, are are simply symbolic presentations of the entire course of church history. And so uh, the various symbols and events, uh, we can go back into history and we can find where uh, those events or those uh, persons appear. Uh, this is why the Reformers <clears throat> always saw the beast of Revelation 13 as the Pope. That was uh, sort of delightful for them to do that. But the judgments of, of Revelation are are identified by specific events. Uh, for example, one well-known historist, uh, historicist commentator in uh, writes that the sixth seal judgment, that is the seal that appears in uh, Revelation chapter 6, and it's the one that talks about the great earthquake and uh, cosmic disturbances and um, uh, not only kings but the commoner hiding themselves in caves wishing uh, to have the um, uh, be hid from the presence of the lamb and and those things tremendous uh, geologic and and cosmic upheavals well this author says and this is basically a quote that the six seal judgment is fear caused by the invasion of the Goths and the Huns around 365 A.D. Huh. I read and reread Revelation 6, and you know what? I didn't find a single Goth or Hun anywhere. And furthermore, I didn't see any time notation that would lead me to think it's 365. So how in the world do they come to that? Well, the answer is very simple, that all historicists agree among themselves about their method. That is, uh, we, we are to be looking at the church age and events that have happened since the first century and identify them with the uh, book of Revelation. But they don't agree. In fact, this is the Achilles heel. They don't agree about the details. It is so incredibly subjective. And again, the interpreter becomes the final authority. Why should the six-seal judgment, using our example, refer to Goths and Huns in 365? Why not World War II? Or why not some other war? Well, it is so, so subjective. And I think that this is one of the reasons why uh, you find that historicism is losing traction uh, amongst uh, many individuals, even though it is the common viewpoint of those churches that came out of the Reformation period. So if you're not going to be a, um, a futurist and you're not going to be a historicist, what are you going to do? Well, Many have moved, as R.C. Sproul did, and he wrote his book, The End Times According to Jesus, or excuse me, The Last Days According to Jesus. He says that <clears throat> the preterists believe that most, if not all, prophecy has already been fulfilled, and it has been fulfilled usually in connection with the destruction of Jerusalem by the Romans in A.D. 70. And so futurists, when they approach the book of Revelation and uh, the Olivet Discourse, when they approach the book of Revelation, they see it as prophecy. In other words, uh, when John wrote it, it was a, uh, a look into the future. Well, if Jerusalem is destroyed in 70 AD, then obviously you have to have the writing of the book earlier than that. And most preterists put it right around 65. Now, we who are futurists uh, see it uh, as being written around 95 A.D. during the reign of Domitian, the emperor. But um, what you find is that that has been the, uh, the strongly held position of the church for about five centuries. The position being that John wrote it in the days of Domitian. Uh, which would place him in um, 
on the island of Patmos about 95 AD. But but the preterists can't allow that because once you put it at 95, obviously, um, it's no longer uh, a future uh, prophecy. So <clears throat> these are the basic approaches, and there's plenty of literature where we can take a look at that uh, if one was so inclined. So we are futurists. and um, But the other thing we need to keep in mind is that um, as we plot out our course before we head out on our on our drive through the book of Revelation, is that I would like to remind you and suggest and maybe introduce you in a couple of cases to what I believe are f- the five basic principles in interpreting the book of Revelation. And uh, we have this in the little book beginning on page four. The first in- interpretive principle is this. We are to interpret Revelation literally, that is, normally, as you would the rest of scriptures. And we approach the book of Revelation believing that God uh, intended us to understand what he has written, and he, the creator of language with its grammar and syntax and all of those good things, uh, that the words, tenses of verbs, sentence structure, all of these things are important to our understanding. And there are are accepted laws of language. And so um, our approach to the book of Revelation is really not any different than our approach to the rest of the Bible. So by interpreting literally or normally, what happens is that uh, that approach to Scripture uh, helps set limits on the interpreter and keeps the interpreter from ending up with never-before-seen interpretations. Now, literal interpretation obviously recognizes figures of speech. Uh, We use figures of speech all the time, and we recognize them for what they are. If I were to say to you that uh, I was out in my backyard the other day, and um, doing some barbecuing, and there were a million mosquitoes out there. Well, you know that's just a figure of speech. What I'm trying to tell you is not that I counted them, but rather there's just a lot of them. Perhaps as a child, you slammed the door as you ran out of the house, and your mother yelled after you, I've told you a million times, don't slam the door. Well, You know, it's only been actually 147,222 times that she said that, but not a million. But we all know what what mom is trying to communicate. So normal interpretation, it sets limits on the interpreter, but it also recognizes figures of speech. And we're going to get into that because that is an important thing when we get into the book of Revelation. And that brings us to number two. Principle number two, interpret figurative language scripturally. You see, figures of speech and symbols represent something actual, and they cannot mean whatever the interpreter might want them to mean. So that when I say a million mosquitoes, um, you can't just believe that I actually counted them. It represents something. A biblical example out of Revelation. Um, In chapter 12, talking about the woman who is uh, representing the nation of Israel, um, it is said that two wings of the great eagle were given to her. Well, the two wings of the great eagle uh, cannot represent Jews uh, fleeing on board United Airlines, LL, Lufthansa, or any other airline. The symbol comes out of Exodus chapter 19, where God is delivering his people from the Egyptians. And the symbol communicates the basic idea that God will sovereignly protect and deliver his people. 
It has nothing to do with the mode of airline travel. It's simply settings, uh, saying that God will protect his people. Now, when the book of Revelation uses figurative language, it's done so because this is before the age of videos and PowerPoints and those visual uh, uh, helps. The the uh, use of symbols uh, quickly, uh, concisely, and memorably uh, communicates important truths, and they stick with you mentally. So, for example, um, how do we interpret those symbols? Uh, as example, in Revelation 12:3, the great red dragon appears. Well. Fortunately, that that particular symbol is quickly interpreted for us a few verses later, where it represents Satan, the devil, the serpent of old, as he is called. More often, uh, while sometimes you do find uh, the imagery interpreted within the uh, same uh, group of verses, more often than not, the larger context of the whole of Scripture has to be examined. Now, A couple of things to keep in mind about uh, figurative language, and it is, um, first of all, John's use of comparative language. Now, when John records something that's beyond his experience, uh, he will use uh, one of two Greek words, uh, one being hos, like we would uh, write H-O-S, or homoois, which we would uh, write as H-O-M-O-I-S. And these two words are used almost 40 times in the book, and they're translated in our English text as like, like as, as. So, for example, when... John talks about, in chapter 8 of Revelation, um, he talks about the second uh, trumpet that is blown. Uh, The text reads this way. And the second angel sounded, and something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea, and a third of the sea became blood. A third of the creatures which were in the sea and had life died, and a third of the ships were destroyed. Now, interpreting that, first of all, John says that he saw something that was like a great mountain. Well, um, he does not say it was a comet or it was a meteor. He would have knowledge of those things and he would have words. But this is not that. This is something that is beyond John's experience. This great mountain, or what appeared to be a great mountain that was on fire, it hit the earth. And when it did, in this case I should say it it hit the sea, one-third of the sea became blood. Well, any meteor or comet um, wouldn't have that worldwide kind of, of phenomenon. But when it hits, whatever it was uh, in this divine judgment, uh, it was like a great mountain, and one-third of the sea became blood. Now, the the number there, one-third, is used as numbers always are used in their normal quantitative uh, sense. In other words, one-third doesn't stand for something. It is actually one-third. So one-third of the oceans are going to become blood. Now, he doesn't say that one-third of the oceans um, turned red. He said they became blood. And we might say, you're kidding. Real blood? And that's exactly what John is saying. And this will be validated later on in chapter 16, by the angel of the waters where the judgments are intensifying and in that last series of judgments known as the bowls 
uh, all of the oceans of the earth and all of the fresh water sources become blood. And the angel of the waters makes the observation that the people, the enemies of God, who have slaughtered God's people during the tribulation period, these people, says the angel, they love blood. And so God is going to judge them with a world full of blood. The punishment definitely fits the crime. And so when we interpret, we have to have a heads up about John's in a use of the term like, like, as, um, those kinds of terms. Now also in this second interpretive principle, where we are to interpret figurative land, uh, language uh, in a scriptural way, what we're saying is that this, the symbols that are used um, oftentimes uh, have a Old Testament background. In fact, <clears throat> Dr. Merrill Tenney, many, many years ago, in his book entitled Interpreting Revelation, um, believed that there were 350 uh, quotes or illusions in the book of Revelation that come directly out of the Old Testament. Well, that's about 15, 16 on average per chapter in the book of Revelation. So if you're dealing with, let's say, 15 Old Testament illusions or references uh, and you don't understand the Old Testament, that's going to that's going to be a problem. And that's also one of the reasons why the book of Revelation is mishandled so often. So, uh, now, first of all, we understand what a quote is. But when Tenney says an illusion, what does he mean by that? Well, an illusion is something that um, is, uh, its language is so unique that while it's not an actual quote, it is so unique that you can track it back into the Old Testament and find out where it came from. Uh, as an excellent example of that, Revelation chapter 11 and John's um, presentation of the two witnesses that will appear uh, for the Lord in the tribulation period. They are said to be the two lampstands and olive trees that stand before the Lord of the earth. Well, that's not a quote, but you go back to Zechariah's night visions in Zechariah chapter 4, and lo and behold, that's what you find. You find in one of the night visions this reference to olive trees and lampstands, which has to do with men who are totally and completely controlled and directed and empowered by the Holy Spirit. So, <clears throat> um, when you look at the breakdown, that uh, 235 out of Tenney's 350, 235 come from the Old Testament prophets. Well, if a person's been raised in a church where they really don't know anything about the prophets, aside from an isolated story of Daniel and the lion's den and a few things like that, but if they really don't know the prophets, it's going to be difficult, bordering on impossible, to really understand the significance of the symbols that are used uh, in the book of Revelation. But they have a meaning. That's the point. They have a meaning. You can't make them up as to what you want them to stand for. So I should point out, by the way, that um, there are many uh, conservative scholars who think that that Tenney's 350 is way too conservative, that there are actually a lot more than that, maybe as many as, as 100 more. So whatever the case, though, we, keep, we need to remember that um, the Old Testament is a key in unlocking the meaning of the symbols of the book of Revelation. 
Now, our third interpretive principle is to compare prophecy with prophecy. And all we're saying there is that God did not give all truth on one subject at any point in time. And and, um, conservative uh, biblical scholars, conservative students of the Bible recognize this. We've always understood this. We look at the doctrine of Christ, and we could start back in Genesis 3.15, where the serpent and Adam and Eve are informed that um, mankind brought the problem of sin into the world, and mankind is going to solve that problem. And the allusion, of course, is to the seed of the woman, who we recognize to be a reference to the Lord Jesus. Well, is that um, all there is to say about Jesus? Well, of course not. As we move through the Old Testament, there are so many other truths uh, that we learn about the Messiah, that he comes from the line of David, of the tribe of Judah. He will be born into this world, a virgin birth, and, and, all, and on it goes. And then the full revelation of him by his appearance recorded in the Gospels, and then theologically explained in books like Philippians. So we do that with prophecy as well. We recognize that uh, the Antichrist, who is first mentioned in Daniel chapter 7, that that's not a complete study of the Antichrist. Uh, More is given on him, even in the book of Daniel. More was given through the Apostle Paul, and of course through the Apostle John. Now, there is one danger uh, when we talk about progressive revelation, and that is what I would call the danger of illegitimate transfer. And while comparing prophecy with prophecy, we must be sure that the various passages we are studying are talking about the same subject, sometimes on the surface Passages may initially appear to be the same subject, and if we're careless on this particular point, uh, it can lead to, uh, I think, erroneous interpretations. Let me give you just a quick example. You may not agree with my example. But when Jesus is talking about the judgments connected with his second coming back to the earth in Matthew chapter 24, He is warning um, uh, people not to get um, dulled by time going by and no longer take things seriously. And he says that in the days of Noah that they were caught off guard by the flood because they had heard about it apparently from Noah so long that they really stopped believing. And so he says that, you know, there are going to be two women grinding at the mill, one taken, one left, and so on. And that sounds like the language of the rapture. But it is actually just the opposite, that those who are taken are not taken to be with the Lord. They are taken and placed in Hades or hell. The ones who are left are left to go into the Messianic kingdom. These are judgments related to the second coming. And so even though the language sounds like rapture language, it really is not. And the context of Jesus' statement has got to be uh, taken into a great consideration. So, interpretive principle number three, interpret by comparing prophecy with prophecy. And with Revelation, we do that. We go back to uh, Daniel. We go back to Zechariah. We go back to Ezekiel. Interpretive principle number four, and this may be a new one in your thinking, interpret Revelation with Genesis 1 through 11 in mind. There are two things that uh, I would like to mention here. One is that we need to remind ourselves particularly in Genesis 1 and 2, what God's original plan was like and what God originally intended to do. And you remember that in the um, uh, Genesis account, uh, everything was good, it was good, it was good, 
And then finally, when it's completed, it is very good. And that plan, which was very good, was quickly ruined by disobedience. We know that. Now, God could have, I know you've thought of this, but God could have destroyed everything and started over again. And what would have transpired? Well, you would have lost two people and one week's work. But if he destroyed everything, uh, one week later, he could be up and running again with with uh, Billy and Susie instead of Adam and Eve. But he didn't do that. He chose rather to restore and to reconcile. And there are some good reasons, obviously, why God would take that approach. But the story of the Bible is going from Genesis 1, 2, and 3 to the last three chapters of Revelation 20, 21, and 22. Because what God is going to do is to restore everything that was lost and even enhance it, make it better uh, in Revelation 20, 21, and 22. So, I mentioned three things specifically. God created Adam and Eve in, uh, as in his image so that having intellect, emotions, and will, they could fellowship with God in an intelligent, reasonable, emotional way. They could fellowship with God. They were also given rulership of the planet. They were king and queen, have dominion over the fish of the sea, and so on. And they were placed in a physical paradise. God gave them physical bodies so that they could enjoy this wonderful place that God created. So when we go to Revelation 20, 21 and 22, what do we find? We find that fellowship has now become a fuller, more enriched fellowship. Whereas God fellowshiped with Adam and Eve in the cool of the day, in Revelation, God is going to fellowship 24-7 with his people. He will come down and fellowship, take up residence with us. In Genesis, Adam and Eve were to rule the planet. They lost that, and Satan became the god of this world. But rulership is going to be restored to mankind, which explains a number of things. Why Jesus, son of man, is emphasized as as king. And why it is that he himself, along with his apostles, emphasized the fact that faithful believers are going to rule with him. In fact, in the eternal phase of the kingdom of God, in Revelation 21 and 22, we have kings and nations there. Adam and Eve were placed in a physical paradise. And God is going to create a new heaven and a new earth. So um, God's plan is to go and restore and enhance everything that was lost back in the Garden of Eden. That is the story of the Bible, and that's where Revelation takes us. Another factor about keeping Genesis in mind in our interpretation of Revelation is that Genesis 1 through 11 is absolutely saturated with the supernatural. The sovereign God suddenly and supernaturally created all things. Uh, He is the one who established the laws of nature. In Genesis 1 through 11, God out of nothing, created the universe and this earth. How do you explain that? Well, you can't. It is by faith that we understand that out of nothing, God created everything. There are incredible changes, supernatural changes, that took place when man's sin and uh, a curse was placed on creation. Uh, take, for example... Um, the uh, the lion or the tiger, which today are carnivorous animals, they weren't then, 
In the original creation, all animals were herbivores. They ate grass and leaves and those kinds of things. But when the curse was came, came uh, they were immediately changed. God would have had to change their, their jaw structure, their digestive systems, their appetites. All these were suddenly to, took place. What about the, the flood of Noah's day? That really cannot be explained by natural phenomenon that we see today. But it was a supernatural event. How about the Tower of Babel? God instantly changed the language of mankind. At one moment, two men were working there on the tower, sculpting stones, um, talking with one another. Minutes later, they couldn't understand a word that the other person was saying. Suddenly, supernaturally, in no explainable way, was their vocabulary and grammar changed. How do you explain that? They obviously didn't go to Rosetta Stone or some online course. It was clearly supernatural. And the great tendency of some commentators is to try to explain everything that uh, God does in the book of Revelation by natural phenomenon. These are supernatural judgments. They are orchestrated by Judge Jesus, who, incidentally, according to Jesus himself, in John chapter 5 and verse 22, all judgment has been committed to the Son of God. And one of the things that we have got to avoid doing is trying to explain how God is going to do it. The book of Revelation explains, it states, it teaches what God is going to do and not how he is going to do it. And so while it may be exciting uh, to explain that the latest computer chip will be used by the Antichrist in his control of the world, the truth of the matter is we do not know. So we need to focus on what God is going to do, not how he is going to do it. And so when we hear about or read about one-third of the earth being burned up, don't immediately go to nuclear uh, activity. I would suggest to you that it will not be nuclear activity because it, if it was nations changing, uh, exchanging uh, um, uh, bombs, nuclear weapons on one another, then you could simply say, well, this is the result of some nutcase in, in North Korea or some uh, out-of-his-mind ayatollah in Tehran. But these are the judgments of God, and men come to understand that particularly. They begin to realize what's happening in the world about the midpoint, uh, Revelation chapter 6. They begin to understand this is not simply a nasty set of circumstances. This is, in fact, the wrath of the Lamb. So we need to interpret Revelation with Genesis 1 through 11 in mind. And finally, interpretive principle number five is that we are to interpret Revelation observing that this book is essentially in chronological order. Sometimes when people read the book or hear it being taught, get the idea that maybe this is just a sort of a random assortment of judgments and events that are sort of mixed together and really um, there's no uh, real flow uh, to it. But the truth of the matter is that the book of Revelation uh, systematically uh, presents the uh, events and the appearance of individuals in chronological order. And John usually makes it very clear when he is, uh, on rare occasions, deviating from that order. One of the phrases that we'll be t talking about is John's use of the phrase, after these things. 
the Greek word metatauta is used again and again, and it communicates the fundamental idea of the sequence of events. So John will write about something, and then he will say, after these things, the things he's just talked about, then such and such is going to take place. So it informs us that there is an uh, an order to the events uh, that we are viewing. And this becomes very important in a number of um, interpretive decisions that we have to make. A second truth um, is the term birth pain that helps establish sequence of events. The word birth pains, or the phrase birth pains, helps our understanding of the flow of the judgments in the book of Revelation. Jesus used this term in his prophetic discourse in Matthew 24, 8, to describe the judgments of the tribulation. Uh, The Apostle Paul, in 1 Thessalonians 5, 3, uses it in a similar way. Now, birth pains is an Old Testament concept used by a number of the prophets. And what it communicates is something rather significant. Birth pains are unique. Um, Even a woman who has not had a baby, when when the birth pains come, normally and usually, it's of a different nature. This is something she's not experienced before. She may have had a tummy ache in the past, but this is different. But a couple of things that characterize birth pains, the first being that uh, the pains become more intense as the time of the birth draws near. And secondly, the pains become closer and closer together as the time of the birth draws near. The birth, in this case, in the book of Revelation, and what Jesus was talking about in Matthew 24, um, is the birth of the Messianic age. So birth pains accurately describe the 19 specific judgments that will usher in the Messianic age. They start out in a noticeable way, but become more and more intense and closer and closer together as the tribulation period moves on. And we will see this validated by the text of Revelation itself. There's one other important um, chronological note that we need to mention. And it it appears in in, uh, Revelation chapter 10 and verse 11. Revelation chapter 9 brings us to the end of the tribulation period. And so when we come to chapter 10, we would assume that now we're going to um, perhaps learn of a final judgment and Jesus' coming. But John is confronted by a strong angel who had a scroll in his hand. And John is told by that angel to take the scroll and to eat it, which again is an Old Testament picture of assimilating the truth of God. And so John uh, does that, and the angels uh, said to him, you must prophesy again concerning many peoples, nations, tongues, and kings. And that is a heads up to the interpreter that all of a sudden now, we're going to have new content The new content is going to be over four specific things that are going to be emphasized in the second half of the tribulation period. Revelation 11, 12, 13, and 14. And then at chapter 15 and 16, he goes back to the final series of judgments which will accompany the second coming of Christ to the earth. So, These are are key indicators to us that um, the uh, that the book of Revelation 
is in fact in chronological sequence. Now, what we have done in page 10 of the book is to give a little chart there which shows the flow of events from chapter 1 through chapter 19, which is uh, the actual second coming of Christ. Now, while we have a few minutes remaining, let's um, take a look at the text of Revelation itself. And when we look at chapter 1 and verse 19, um, we discover something, and this is pretty well universally believed, that embedded in the text of Revelation is the divine outline of the book. And there are three parts to this outline. Let me read Revelation 1.19. Write therefore the things which you have seen, and the things which are, and the things which shall take place after these things. Well, in Revelation chapter 1, John has received um, a vision of the glorified Lord Jesus Christ. And when that particular vision is ended, the risen Christ tells John that he is to write down which he, that which he just has seen, this vision of Christ, the person of Christ, who it is that is in charge of the events that are now going to take place in the book of Revelation. The second thing he is then to write about are the things which are, which reference chapters 2 and 3, as we will see. And it's the the churches of Christ, the, the present church age, which are represented by seven identifiable churches. And then the third section of the book, the things which shall take place after these things, after the things of the church, then you have these next events, which are all future. And this is Christ's program in judging, taking back the planet, and bringing millions to him in faith. So that is the basic outline of the book. Now, when the um, book begins, uh, the first three verses, if you happen to have your Bible available, it it might be helpful to take a look uh, at these um, particular um, verses. Uh, The book begins the revelation or the apocalypsis. Now, it's interesting that today the term apocalypse is used all the time in reference to, you know, it's an apocalyptic event, meaning it's terrible, it's a judgment, it's a, a catastrophe in nature of some sort. But the word means simply a disclosing or unveiling. This is an unveiling given by Jesus Christ but also about Jesus Christ. And so it is going to be an unveiling in the sense that we learn brand new truth about Judge Jesus, as well as how he establishes uh, his kingdom. It's the revelation of Jesus Christ which God gave to him, to Jesus, to show to his bondservants the things which must shortly take place. Now, this, um, he says, the things which must take place. And this is actually a phrase that uh, goes all the way back to Daniel chapter 2 and the vision that he had there of um, the, st- or the interpretation of Nebuchadnezzar's statue vision. And it's emphasizing, this phrase, the things which must take place, of the certainty of events. Jesus used the same phrase in his prophetic discourse in Matthew 24, 6. It will be used again in chapter 4 and verse 1, and then all the way in chapter 22. The things which must take place. And this is simply a declaration of the certainty of these events. You see, These events 
are going to take place because God, on oath, has declared that they're going to take place. So biblical prophecy must take place because really the character of God is at stake. Another thing that he says is the things which must shortly take place. Now those who teach that all of this uh, took place in 70 AD because of these timing words in the book of Revelation shortly um, uh, will take place, um, will use this to say, look, shortly means shortly. And um, But <clears throat> this term is not a timing word. It is a chronological indicator which deals with um, not with when something will happen, but rather how it will happen. When you go to the uh, major uh, Greek lexicons like Bag and Lindell and Scott, they point out that um, the word that's used here comes from the uh, family of, uh, uh, of words, taki, takos, that it really is an adverb of manner. Uh, it is describing the manner in which things will t- occur, not when they will occur. And so the idea is not um, quickly, but it's the idea of suddenly. It's a qualitative indicator which describes how the Lord will uh, return or how these events will take place. So the things which must suddenly take place. This is the way it will happen, that when it begins, it's going to happen suddenly. Jesus, in other words, is going to return suddenly. Also, it's good to note that in verse 3, blessed is the man who reads reads these words and heeds the things that are written in it. There is blessing that comes to a person who studies the book of Revelation, and incorporates the truths into life. Now, just in summary fashion, in chapter 1, John uh, writes to the seven churches which are in Asia. And in verse 11, he identifies those churches specifically um, as Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. John gives his greetings. He's on the island of Patmos, he says in verse 9. He is there as really a political prisoner of Rome, but he says because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. And he gives greetings from himself, but also from the Trinity, the Father whose uh, eternality is is emphasized the Holy Spirit, uh, the seven spirits, but uh, that comes out again of Zechariah chapter 4. The Holy Spirit is prominent in the tribulation period. Uh, By the way, the Spirit of God is not taken out of the world at the rapture event. That's a theological impossibility. He is omnipresent and he's absolutely necessary in convicting uh, people of sin and regenerating them. He is, his ministry of the restraint of sin is removed, but he himself is not. The emphasis is upon Jesus, who is seen in verse 5 as both prophet, priest, and king. Now, <clears throat> John sees a vision of Christ, um, and he's described uh, really beginning uh, in in verse uh, 12, where John hears a trumpet-like voice uh, speaking to him, and he turns and he looks and, and hears this individual like a son of man. He's human in appearance. And all of these other descriptions that are given to him, and these are not things that John has made up. If you recognize Daniel 7 and 10, you'll realize that what you have here is Jesus Christ being described in the terms of deity. It's an emphasis upon his deity that's involved here. And so 
the one who is the focus of the book, uh, this one is going to uh, give him the revelation that is to come. And he is the one who is going to be revealed as the great judge of the great coming king as well. And so when John turned, he saw this Lord Jesus standing in the middle of seven golden lampstands. And um, um, he says at the end of chapter 1 and verse 20, As for the mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand, the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angel of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. So um, when John um, falls down to worship him, and rightly so, um, Jesus then uh, gives him information about uh, these seven churches. Now the question arises as to why it is to these seven churches when we know full well that there are a lot, a lot more uh, than seven churches in the um, uh, region of Asia when John wrote in 95 AD. In fact, <clears throat> two of them are mentioned in the scriptures. Uh, one had a book written to it, and that would be the church at Colossae. And in Colossians, you have a reference to the church at Heropolis as well. So you have this tri-city area of Laodicea, Colossae, and Heropolis. But the seven are selected, and there would have been dozens and dozens more. So the question is, why does he say to the seven churches? And really the basic uh, and the best uh, reason is that these these churches... Well, obviously they existed in the first century, but they were selected because they represent seven basic spiritual conditions of the church in any age. And that includes the local church that you belong to and that I belong to. So the, in other words, that there are uh, Ephesians, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Laodicea, Philadelphia-type churches today, and they have been throughout the church ages. And so what we are to learn from this is what characterized each of these churches. And if we have uh, some sort of understanding as to what our local church looks like, then we also have a wonderful understanding of what the Lord of the church thinks about our local church. So... The um, uh, each one of the letters there's a there's a basic format to them, and that is that you have um, uh, a word of praise that's being given to them. Uh, Christ first of all identifies himself usually from the image out of chapter uh, one. The Lord identifies himself and then he gives praise uh, to the church. Um, and then if the church um, needs some corrections, he will correct it and and basically tell them what was going to happen if they don't respond. So um, there are two exceptions um, to the pattern, and that is the churches at Smyrna and Philadelphia, Christ does not uh, censor them for any bad behavior or bad doctrine. And the result is they are not facing any disciplines from him. The church at Laodicea, no praise is given to them, which immediately tells us that that's the worst of the seven churches. Each letter ends with the spirit um, being mentioned. Each church... um, is to learn from the letters to the other churches as well. So each letter will end, um, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Now each letter begins, 
with to the angel of the church. Now, who is the angel to the local church? Um, it might surprise you what John seems to be saying. And each letter will end with a promise to the overcomer. Who are overcomers, anyway? Well, we will have to begin our next study by answering those questions and then uh, moving through uh, rather rapidly the seven churches and then looking at the prophetic portion of the book of Revelation, chapters 4 through 22. And I think that um, it will help us uh, develop a stronger grip on the book of Revelation itself. I would encourage you uh, to read the book of Revelation a couple of times um, before we get together uh, in the May edition. Again, though, uh, if you're interested in getting the book, um, simply go to my website, paulbenware.com, and there will be a notification on the home page of um, of uh, this new little book on Revelation. Again, do read the book a time or two before we uh, gather together.